Welcome this morning. So glad you could be here. Uh, whether you're here in Lexington, in the courtyard, in Watertown, Wilmington, or online, welcome glad, uh, in East Lexington. Don't let me forget. Hello there in East Lexington. Glad you could join us this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Um, I think that many of us uh, know that closet from that video. We know that place, those moments when nothing is going right. Maybe even our kids are making a spaghetti sauce in our handbag. Today, we're talking about how we can go to God in those moments. God wants us to come to him in those moments. But sometimes our prayers, our words are not always G-rated. Sometimes there are adult themes that creep into our prayers. Sometimes we hope that our prayer closets have an airtight seal so that our parents, our spouses, our kids can't hear us fighting with God. 
sometimes our prayers are less like but and why and more like how dare you. Sometimes it seems like the only true things that we can say to God sound more like a Scorsese film than a Disney film. Sometimes we're so far from God that it feels like we need to shout, yell, scream, or maybe even swear for God to hear us. Sometimes we feel like the mom in that video that we just watched with a whirlwind around us that we can't control. And these words are the first words that come out. Today, let's together give up any pretenses about our relationships with God. We don't need to hide from the truth. Let's be honest with ourselves before God. He's big enough to handle it because sometimes our one-word prayers start with an expletive. What a strange sermon to preach. Uh, I've heard sermons telling you why not to pray. I've uh, seen young pastors swear in their sermons just to be controversial. I've seen pastors avoid swearing in awkward ways during their sermons. Uh, but this is the first one that I've seen or been a part of where we talk about swearing in our prayers. Uh, so, yeah, yeah, this is interesting. Uh, Tim Galley is our pastor of Family Life, and this summer he's been coordinating our summer sermon series on one-word prayers. And uh, he asked me which topic I'd like to preach on this summer, and I was trying to be a team player. And I told him, Tim, whatever you want me to preach on, I'm willing, I'm happy, whatever it is. And uh, this is what he gave me. So thanks, Tim. I think he's actually in here, so thank you for that. And uh, I thought we were friends, just, just putting that out there. For those of you that are uncomfortable with even thinking about swearing or talking about swearing in church, let me reassure you right now, I'm not going to swear in this sermon. That's not happening. Um, I've never, if you've never felt this way during your prayer time, if you've never felt so frustrated that words cannot contain your anger, that's great. I, I'm happy for you. Um, if you would, spend this time getting to know the rest of us. And, uh, and hearing a little bit from us who are still maybe growing in our relationships with God. This is, this is an important sermon, I think, for a lot of people. I'm not advocating during this time that you take up swearing just so that you have a, a, more, a more active prayer life. That's not what today's about. Today is not a prescriptive time of how to pray. But the question is, what does God do... How does God deal with us when we come to him frustrated, angry, and don't have the time or the will to censor ourselves? If someone wanted to prepare a sermon on, on why we shouldn't swear or use coarse language, they, they definitely would not have to look far. I found several dozen passages from all across the Bible warning against how we use our tongues with prohibitions against oaths, swearing, and cursing, all three. And maybe most notably is Jesus in Matthew chapter 15. He says this, Are you so dull? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. Jesus tells us that our words, what we say, is a representation of the state of our hearts. If we have bad language, this is who we are. Our words are a meter showing us where we are. 
There is no question when it comes to the text of the Bible, God doesn't want us using language flippantly. He doesn't want us using coarse language. He doesn't want us cursing or swearing oaths. Words can do harm. And for us in the body of Christ, words are the center of our community. And so they're very important what we do with them. But what does God do when we swear at him? How does he see our swearing? Are there certain words we can say and words that we can't say? Should we pretend that we don't feel the way that we do? Should we just use nice language, nice church language, and take a somber tone and fold our hands real nicely and sit on our knees and pray in just the right form? I, like many of you, find words fascinating. Um, in my undergraduate studies, I was an English major who hated literature classes. Um, and so I, I took most of my upper division courses in linguistics because it was more interesting. And the history of swear words themselves are an interesting topic that we don't have time to get into today. But when we look at what constitutes bad language, it's incredibly culturally specific. In English, you can describe the exact same action with two words that mean the same thing etymologically, but one is much too vulgar for polite company, and the other is just considered normal language. In fact, all of our major swear words in the English language, we once considered to be polite. That's an interesting thing. But over time, social mores concerning sex and the bathroom have relegated those words to the unmentionable category. We see this in both colorful metaphors and just explicit swear words. So these are not magic words. There's no magic words that's a swear word in all languages at all times. Swear words change. Um, so is God up there playing buzzword bingo, looking for us to hit the right bad words at the right time? Does he hang out with teenagers and young adults to learn the newest swear words and euphemisms so that he can... Make sure we don't use them? No, no, it's because it's not about the words themselves. They are arbitrary, but we use them because our hearts are bad or our hearts are in a bad place. We shouldn't hide this or run away from it. Here's the thing God knows your heart whether you use those words or not. We find three types of swear words in the Bible. We find oaths, which is like swearing by God's name. We find this in the oldest books of the Bible. Uh, we, we see prohibitions against coarse and foul language. We also find curses similar to how we might say go to hell uh, in our language. Job is a story that some conservative scholars to believe one of the oldest stories in the history of Yahweh's people. Possibly even written at the time of Moses. Although the, the date has no sense, consensus in the academic world. Job is a guy that lived in the times of uh, Abraham, the patriarchs, 2000 BC, a long time ago. He's described as an incredibly wealthy man. And God says that he's righteous. Job was such a good guy that when his kids would spend a night partying, he would wake up early the next morning and offer a sacrifice and pray for them just in case they had done something wrong while they were partying the night before. That's, that's how good of a guy this Job is. We're talking dad of the year type stuff. In a cosmic drama that's unfolding behind the scenes in Job, 
God suggest to Satan, the fallen angel, that he consider his servant Job? Kind of like God was toting out his, his most righteous person, his, his best racehorse, and uh, challenging Satan to a race. This whole story, you should feel sorry for Job. He gets an incredibly raw deal. Satan sees God saying that Job is righteous as a complete falsehood. Satan says that Job is only righteous because God gives Job lots of stuff. He's only righteous because he's rich and God has blessed him. If God took away the things that he had given to Job, then Job would not walk with God. And so God says to Satan, you can do anything to Job. I believe in him so much that you can do anything to him except hurt his body. Poor Job. Satan does his worst. All at once, in a span of just five minutes or so, he finds out that his servants are killed, his cattle is stolen, his sheep are burned up in a fire, his camels run off, and all ten of his, of his children have been killed. In all this, Job is such a good guy, he stays faithful to God. In 122 of Job, it says this, In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. And so, Satan moved the goalposts. Not only was it enough to take all of Job's things, he was convinced that if God would let him hurt his body, if God would let him feel pain, then Job would turn. And if God would just let Satan strike Job's body, then he'll buckle. Poor Job. God says, okay, and let Satan inflict boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. His wife is so distraught seeing Job like this that she suggests to him that Job should curse God and die. It's, it's really nice to have encouragement from your wife in such a difficult time. Thanks, honey. I really appreciate that. But in all this, even, even with his wife suggesting that he drop dead, Job didn't sin. Then Job's three friends come along. Well, Let's put friend in quotes here. Uh, the friends gather together in a home with Job and uh, sit with him in his misery. They tear their clothes and they cry and they wail and they moan and they sprinkle ashes on their heads. And then they go to work for 36 chapters trying to convince Job that he deserves to be suffering. And that it must have been something that he did. And once he repents, then God will alleviate his pain and suffering and maybe even let him die. With friends like that, who needs enemies? You know what I'm saying? Job speaks first when his friends come, and this is what he says to them in chapter 3, verse 1. Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, A boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it, May no light shine on it. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. It goes on like this for an entire chapter. Job says to his friends, I curse the day that I was born. And let everyone who does curse, curse this day. And they should curse this day so loudly that they sleep a waking dragon. 
That's, that's the literal translation of this. Now, I want to pause here because the language is lost a little bit in the history and the translation. But, but curse here means something similar to, may that day be sent to hell, destroyed and forgotten. This is strong language. It's cursing at God's creation. And it's, it's a not-so-subtle way of Job saying to God that he messed up when he made him. That it would have been better if Job had never existed. So whether you're the type of person that swears in your prayers, or sometimes gets so angry that you swear at God for what he's doing, it's not our words, these special swear words, that are wrong to say to God. When we curse at God, it is the position that we take as God's judge that really gets us in trouble when we stand before God. It's our blasphemous hearts that constantly want to replace God. That's why our swear words are wrong, is because it places us above God as his judge. But God allows us to come to him even in the wrong way. Job is such a good guy that even through all of this, he doesn't find fault with God. Even when he's laid lower than many any person ever has been, you've all heard of Murphy's Law, whatever can go wrong, will go wrong. Job is, the, is really the true end of Murphy's Law. Everything can and did go wrong. If anybody had a gripe with God, it's Job. Job holds up for seven chapters with his friends coming at him, accusing him of sin, trying to figure out why this happened to Job. And in chapter 10, Job breaks down and starts to question God. In verse 2, he starts this way. I will say to God, do not condemn me, but tell me what charges you have against me. Does it please you to oppress me, to spurn the work of your hands while you smile on the schemes of the wicked? And then he goes on in verse 8. Your hands have shaped me and made me. Will you now turn and destroy me? Remember, it was you that molded me like clay. Will you now turn me to dust again? And then he accuses God not only of doing this, but of plotting to have done it from the beginning. It says this in verse 12. You gave me life and you showed me kindness. And in your providence you watched over my spirit. But this is what you concealed in your heart, God. I know that this was on your mind. If I sinned, you would be watching me and would not let my offense go unpunished. We see Job in his pain, in his agony, attacked by his friends, and then he turns to God, accusing God. Here, if, if at any time, it's understandable. In Job's situation, with everything he owns stolen or destroyed, and all of his children dead, his whole body is covered in crusty boils, he gets a little testy with God. Not only has he cursed the day of his birth, and asked other people to help him curse his own life, he asked God to let him die, and then he turns to God in anger. Now, I think this is important. Job turns to God. Sure, it's his anger that he turns to God, but he's turning towards God. He turns toward God and accuses him of plotting to hurt him, to make him suffer. He believes that God not only did this terrible thing to him, but God has been plotting Job's misery his entire life. In, in my early 20s, I, I was going through an incredibly difficult time. 
I was experiencing some of the consequences of my own sin and stupid choices. Um, some, ex- some circumstances around my life were going really badly. I had just broken up from a really unhealthy relationship, and I was just in the dumps. I didn't know where to go, and all of this to boot, I hadn't been walking with God for a couple of years at this point. I was struggling. And uh, a friend offered their cabin, and so on the porch of a cabin in central Idaho, I let out to God a string of expletives that would make me blush if you knew what I said. I opened up and got mad at God because I was hurting and angry and vulnerable, because I didn't know what else to do. I turned to God looking for someone to blame just like Job did. Job turned to God and did the same thing. On the face of it, one might think that God would be mad at Job for blaming him, accusing him of wrongdoing. Uh, there's this scene in the uh, iconic movie, Jerry Maguire. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it's, it's a movie that fits this sermon in that there's a lot of bad language, so don't go watching it today. Uh, but there's this one great line that I just couldn't get out of my head this week. Rod, the cocky wide receiver whose agent was Jerry Maguire, he and Jerry were fighting in the locker room. They're yelling at each other about what he should do with his contract. And Rod turns to Jerry and he says something that I'll never get out of my head. He says, see, that's the difference between us, Jerry. You think we're fighting. I think we're finally talking. Blaming God is what God wants from us if we're far from God because it gets us talking to him. God would prefer the anger, the rage, and the bad language to our silence because God wants anything, nothing else more than for us to draw near to him. You have to think as a parent, would you rather have your kid at your house fighting with you or your kid having run away and never speaking to you? This is the dilemma God has, so he's stuck with us, and he wants us, and he wants a relationship with us, and so he's willing to put up with us in those moments of anger and pain to let us come to him. What? God wants us to blame him for everything bad that happens in the world? He wants us to hold him responsible to take care of us? There are some assumptions that we need to trace in Job's blaming God and cursing that day. And and there are some beliefs that are hidden in us when we are angry with God and turn towards him. When Job blames God, he's making a statement about who God is. When we blame God for things that we're angry about, we're making a statement about the nature of God. And here's the thing. Many of them are true. The first, we are saying that God exists. When you're yelling at God, you're acknowledging his existence. Otherwise, you're a madman because you're screaming at nothing. When we are angry with God and speak to him, we're making that first step towards faith, acknowledging God exists. Second, we're saying that God is powerful enough to change our circumstances. Otherwise, we'd be idiots to be wasting our air yelling at God if he doesn't have the power to change our situation. Third, we're saying that God is the creator and that he's responsible for everything in the world. 
Now, I'm not saying that God is responsible for all the sin and death and destruction that we experience in this world. A lot of that's me, a lot of that's you, and a lot of that is Satan and the powers of darkness in this world. But here's the thing. God made everything in the world. He made everything that exists. And on some level, he's got the big shoulders in that he's responsible. He's sovereign for everything that happens. And lastly, we're saying that we think God cares about us. That he loves us and that he ought to care for us like a good father. Now, if you look at these four things, that moves you pretty far along the way to God. You believe he exists. You believe he's powerful. You believe he's sovereign. You believe that he's good and cares about you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be yelling at him. When God cursed about what had happened to him and questioned God's motives, he was making some bold statements about who God is. And when we swear, about, when we swear at God, we may not be as far from God as we imagine. If you swear at God, you do believe in him. Otherwise, you wouldn't be swearing. You think he's listening and cares on some level. Otherwise, all this swearing and anger is a waste of hot air. And starting the conversation, even in frustration, it's still a conversation. You think you're fighting. And God thinks you're finally talking. This is what I've been finding as I've talked about this sermon with my friends. As I've shared with them kind of the premise, the big idea. They've told me their stories about those times of pain and anger when they've gone to God and not known what to say. They've shared with me that they're at the end of their ropes, swearing at God about their third miscarriage, their hopeless future, their crisis of faith. And what they kept saying to me was, that was a turning point in my life. That was when God got a hold of my heart. I finally started to allow God to love me. The same thing happens for Job. This is why God is not just okay with you swearing at him in frustration or pain. He allows it. But this is why God invites you to come even with your strong language. He knows that in those moments, you are engaging with him. He knows that this is where we need to be. Although, when, when we are swearing at God and angry at him, we think that we have the right to judge God for his choices, that he's responsible to respond to my charges. And over time, what happens is when we spend enough time with God yelling at him, we're changed, and the language goes away, and we're still there with God. In chapter 38, after listening to Job thrash and moan and cry and curse, God finally speaks, and Job is laid flat. Now, imagine you're standing before God, and he's speaking to you after you've just spent a lot of time angry with him. That's always awkward when you're, you're talking bad about someone and they hear about it, <laughs> and then they confront you about it. That's what's going on here, but this is the God of the universe. Here's what God says to Job. Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you will answer me. Where were you 
when I laid the earth's foundation? No, no, tell me if you understand. Uh, who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know, you were there, right? Who stretched a measuring line across it? Oh man, you got to believe that Job in that moment is like, what have I done? <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? Here I am standing before God having just questioned what he's doing. And God is asking me what gives me the right to question him. God is there, just like in Job, to listen attentively when we turn towards him. Even with our accusations. But, and this is a big but, get ready for some things to happen. You cannot stay in the place that you are when you come before the God of the universe. You will be transformed in his presence. You cannot stand before him and get a glimpse of his size, his glory, his greatness and his power and not be changed. This is what happens to Job. Job is demolished. Here's how he responds. Chapter 40, verse 4. I am unworthy. How can I reply to you, God? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer twice. I will say no more. Smart guy, this Job. It was laid flat by God, and he knows, he knows what to do now. Close his mouth. Job's no fool. He's not going to speak against God a second time. But God is not done with Job at this point, and he's not done with us. Once he has our attention, he wants to change us so that we know him better, so that we love him more, so that we understand better our place in this world. God once, a, once again comes at Job in chapter 40. God then confronts Job directly. Now what do you have to say for yourself? Are you going to haul me, the mighty one, into court and press charges? God's not done after just getting our attention. He has something to say to us. When we stand before God and we see how small we are in comparison to him, when we yell at him and he draws near to us, when he reminds us of all the ways that he's provided for us, the ways that he's dealt justly with us, the ways that he's been merciful to us, the appropriate response for us is true worship. Even at our worst, when we treat God like our enemy, he loves us like a child. When we try to hurt him and accuse him of doing wrong, he wraps us up in embrace like a good father. God comes through for Job. Immediately after this, he restores everything that he had had before the calamity two times over. He even gives Job ten more children. Now it's important to note that that doesn't make Job whole. He'll always have gone through this experience. He'll always be the father of ten dead children. Things don't always work out the way that we want them to in this life and this side of eternity. Job couldn't be made whole for his losses. And for me, I'm still waiting to see how God works out some of the things that I was yelling at him at that cabin several years ago. But I'm walking with God through these things because I was there. 
because I brought them to God and spoke truthfully, God is walking alongside of me through the pain and the sorrow, the agony, and the tough times. Now, my, my little brother Richard is five years younger than me, and uh, so I've gotten a front row seat at watching him grow up um, with five years of experience behind me. I, I try not to tell him everything that he should do. It's hard for us older siblings to, to not take that role of a second parent, but my little brother Richard in his late teen years, went through some incredibly hard things. Uh, my father was a pastor, and he went through a terrible church split as my brother was finishing high school. It was, it was just devastating. That, coupled with some other experiences in subsequent churches and his own rebellious nature, he walked away from God. My little brother just wandered and played for eight years. And uh, we, we prayed and prayed and hoped that God would work in his life through that time. My older sister, Rebecca, was the most, most faithful of us in praying for him. And she's the children's pastor at a church. Um, and they were putting on a vacation Bible school. And so she tricked Richard into helping out with the tech for vacation Bible school last summer. And uh, Richard wasn't walking with the Lord, but he, he thought it'd be fun to hang out with the kids for a week. And so he came and did vacation Bible school with them. And he had a great time. He experienced the life and the community of the church that he, he had wanted and he'd been longing for. He, he saw the joy in people's lives that he was hoping to grasp hold of. And so he did the only reasonable thing that someone would do. On Friday night after VBS, he went home and drank as much as he could and got drunk as, as much as he could and then had it out with God. He screamed and yelled, he swore at God, and in a drunken stupor, came to God. What happened was he, he made a, a bet with God, and he said, God, if you are real, prove it to me. If you are real and have real power, prove that you can do something good. Now, myself and my wife, Malia, and my brother and his wife, both couples, we had struggled to have children. We'd been praying for years and years that God would give us kids. And so Richard said, God, if you are real, give Robert and Jonathan babies. And uh, it's a weird thing. I don't know why he prayed that, but he did. And uh, a week later, my oldest brother, Jonathan, uh, sent us all a message saying that after a last-ditch effort, God had given them a pregnancy that was viable and uh, that they were going to have a baby. And my little brother Richard called me up that day, and he's like, hey, Robert, uh, so how's it going? And he was, he was kind of trying to fish to see if we might be trying to have a baby at that point. And I was like, hey, I, I have no idea about what had happened the week before. And uh, he's just asking. We never talked about pregnancy or fertility. He's like, so are you guys still trying to have babies? I mean, it's crazy with Jonathan and all. And I was, I was like, yeah, we're, we're trying, we're praying, maybe God will come through. And we had, we had lost hope. It had been a really, really tough time. And, uh, but that morning, Malia had taken a pregnancy test. And we were pregnant, and it was too early to tell him that we were pregnant. Um, and so I waited four weeks, and uh, when it was the appropriate time, I called up everybody and told them that we were going to have a baby. And uh, it's kind of amazing. I have pictures. I'm a new dad. I always have pictures. Uh, this, is, this is little Elsie. 
This is Elsbeth. She's a huge soccer fan, as you can tell. Um, and uh, then this is, this is my brother's daughter, Molly. Um, my brother did not clean up his act before he went to God. He didn't make sure he said all the right things or used the right language. He didn't even make sure that he was sober when he said those things. But our God is so gracious, so merciful, and he's such a lovesick dad that he met my brother. He met him. And because of these two little babies, my little brother Richard's been going to church for a year, and he's been growing in his faith, and God's doing things in his life. Richard cursed at God, God showed up, we got baby Elsie. <laughs> Even when we need to swear at God, it's not the right thing to do, it's not what we're prescribing, but God meets us in that space. The story of Job ends with this response to God. The Lord replied to Job, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, whatever way you come into God's presence... God is going to meet you there, and you're going to be changed. That's what happens. And so I want to invite you, if you're holding back, if, if you're pretending like those things aren't happening in your life, if you think that you need to put yourself together before you come to God, you don't. God wants you now, today. I'm going to give you some space. We're going to spend a few moments now praying, and then afterwards we're going to have a reflective song that the band's going to sing. And I, I'd, I'd like to invite you now and in the chapel after the service, spend some moments getting real with God about where you are. He's waiting for you. He's ready. And you're going to experience something real as you, as you enter into his presence. So let's pray together. Lord God, thank you that even when our prayers aren't right, even when we use bad language and our hearts are bad, you meet us there. Thank you that you're drawing us to yourself even when we're hurting and angry and afraid. Lord God, thank you that you meet us even when we're filled with pride and arrogance and we think we can judge you. Lord God, draw us near in this time. Help us to take off the masks that keep us from you. Help us to take away all the shielding that we have that we think protects us from you, but really keeps us from you. God, we're here. It looks like fighting, but we're here to talk. Show up in this space. In your name we pray. Amen.